بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما رسالة رسول اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد This is session number 80 in our series Islam's Greatest Personalities on part 29 of the Seerah of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the previous sessions we spoke about the persecution, the torture, and the difficulties the Muslims had to go through whilst in Makkah al-Mukarramah, and how the Quraysh, the Mushrikeen, they harassed the Muslims so much so that a group of Muslims migrated to Abyssinia, and then a larger group went and migrated to Abyssinia and then settled there for 15 years. And then last week we spoke about how in between the two migrations, there was the conversion of Hamza anhu, and the conversion of Umar bin Khattab anhu, and then a few other incidents that took place uh, that gave some kind of hope and glory to the Muslims. And we concluded last week's session on discussing the splitting of the moon, how the Prophet uh, followed the request of the Mushrikeen and split the moon, uh, despite which the Mushrikeen said that uh, we still don't believe this is some kind of magic and sorcery. What happens now? Now you've got the Muslims are like active again, Islam spreading again, and they've got Hamza, they've got uh, Umar bin Khattab, and if you remember, Amr ibn al-As, the Ahiyatul Arab, the most shrewdest man of the Arabs, went all the way to Abyssinia to try and convince the Jashi to send the Muslims back, but he failed miserably as well. So, to understand, the path of truth has never been an easy path. Path of truth has never been an easy path. The path of truth has always been associated with sacrifice, always been associated with trials, always been associated with challenges and tests. Challenges and tests is not a bad thing. It's actually, when I say it's not a bad thing, that doesn't mean it's a good thing in the sense that we shouldn't ask for it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that something's going wrong. That has always been the way. If you look at the way of the Prophets, okay, and the Prophet they want the truth, they weren't doing anything wrong. But the challenge is that's part and parcel of it. And Rasulullah faced this not over a few days. It wasn't just like, okay, in the beginning it was a bit difficult. Till his last moment, there were challenges, there were trials, there were tribulations. They might have changed, but they continued. And it was something that was a lifetime of struggle. After everything had failed, the Mushrikeen tried everything. After all else had failed in preventing the Prophet ﷺ from spreading the message of Islam, and not only did they fail, instead the Muslim community was growing. Islam was spreading. And they were growing in strength, they were growing in number, they were growing in spirit. Like up until now, they're praying secretly. Umar accepts Islam, now they're praying openly by the Kaaba. Right? So the Mushrikeen are trying everything to suppress them. And instead, what's happening? Muslims are getting stronger in number, in spirit, in glory, and everything. The Muslims in Abasha are freely and openly practicing religion, living in luxury. Not only do they have the support of Najashi, they get an idea that Najashi might have even accepted Islam. So all of this is happening. And then you've got Hamza, Muslim. Umar bin Khattab is also a Muslim. The Quraysh found this unbearable. Do you think they were going to stop? Right? They were going to stop. They found this unbearable. How can we sit back and relax and let all this happen? 
So this is when they came to a decision amongst themselves and said, look, up until now they had never said this. They had never done this. Now they came to a decision that the only thing left for us to do now is let's kill the Prophet Let's go and kill him. That's the only way we can stop this now. We've tried everything, none of it's worked. So the only way it's going to happen is we just kill him. And that's the end. But it wasn't easy as that. No one was willing to do it. That's the problem. They wanted to hire a hitman, someone else, to come and do the job. They didn't want to do it. They knew they can't do it. Because over there there were tribes, there were clans. It doesn't matter whether they were Muslim or not. If you attack somebody from another tribe, all their people would be after you and your tribe. And it, that's how it works. So Quraysh decided that we want to kill him. But we can't do it ourselves. But to, to, to be able to kill him, first we need him. But he's got support, he's got people with him. So they decided, they got together, and they made a group and they came to Abu Talib. And they said to Abu Talib that, look, we've had so many discussions, so many negotiations, nothing's working. We want you to hand him over. Hand him over to us. We're going to deal with it. And, you know. And because the Quraysh knew that they couldn't kill him, they went to the Bani Hashim. And the Banu Hashim were the clan of the Prophet Wasallam. So you've got Quraysh. Now all of the people are Quraysh. All of these are Quraysh. But then Quraysh has got so many different clans there, different, different tribes of the Quraysh. So you've got Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. These are the people in the family of the Prophet Wasallam. Okay? You've got Banu Abdul Shams. Banu Abdul Shams, Abdul Shams bin Abdul Manaf. These are the same people who later on become Banu Umayyah. And we speak about the Umayyads. Uthman ibn Affan is from the Banu Abdul Shams and the Umayyads come from there as well. So these were kind of close together. On the other side we had Banu Makhzum. Abu Jahl is from Banu Makhzum, large massive tribe. Abu Bakr from Banu Tayl, small tribe, not many people. Umar from Banu Adi, bigger than Banu Tayl, but not as big as Banu Makhzum. So these are separate tribes. But Banu Hashim. These are the people of the Prophet his extended family. So the people of Quraysh, they got together, they came to Banu Hashim and spoke to them individually, and they tried to uh, convince them that, look, we want you to hand over the Prophet to us, and you know, and, and, and they say it very clearly, like, look, we're going to get him killed. And we're willing to give you double, triple the blood money. You know, if you kill somebody, right? Uh, it was like, what, 10 camels or 100 camels, right? If someone gets blood money is there. We'd give you, we'll give you double, triple, quadruple if you want. But just uh, agree to have him hand it over to us so we can get this job done. And we'll take care of, of, of the rest. But the Banu Hashim, they rejected this proposal, so did the Banu Abdul Muttalib. We're not just talking about the Muslims, we're talking about even the non-Muslims, the Kafirs, the Mushrikeen. They rejected the proposal based on Hamiya. Hamiya is like nationalism. That is one of us. We're not going to hand one of our people to you, regardless of what his religion is, right? I might be a Mushrik, he's a Muslim, but at the end of the day, one of our guys, we're not going to hand him over, full stop. So they all refused and rejected. Uh, when Abu Talib found out that the reason the Quraysh wanted us to hand him over is to actually kill him, now this is serious. And it's like that you could tell that it's all been planned out, they're very serious about it. Not just an idea that they might. They actually came with that intention and they're planning for it. When Banu, uh, Abu Talib found out that they want to kill him, Abu Talib assembled the Banu Hashim and the Banu Abdul Muttalib. He got them all together, but he didn't get to meet together in, in, in the Haram. He got them all together in a place which is called the Valley of Abu Talib. In Arabic, we call it the Sha'ab Abi Talib. So this is where he assembled them. Now, where is this today? 
for those of you who have been to Makkah and Marina, and if you haven't been, may Allah take everybody again and again. But you'll have an idea. So where you have Safa and Marwa, you've got the Kaaba here, you've got Safa and Marwa. If you come out where Safa and Marwa is, right in between, and you carry on walking ahead, you find an old library, and that is known as where the Prophet was born. That's those of you who have been will know. Now beyond that, if you go further beyond that, there's an open area now. That was known as the Sha'ab Abi Talib, the Valley of Abu Talib. Sha'ab in Arabic means an area between two mountains. Okay, now obviously a lot of the mountains have been moved away and they don't, not, no longer remain. But it's, it's like an open area, there's nothing much there in that sense. So it's not too far, just about maximum would be a kilometer from the Kaaba. Maximum. Like it's not so far, but it's not right next to the Kaaba. So going out in that direction, towards that in between Safa and Marwa, you carry on going ahead, and that is where this area was. So there were two mountains, in between the two mountains, like a valley, or you call it, what do you call it, a gorge, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what it was. So this is where Abu Talib gets together all the Banu Hashim and the Banu Abdul Muttalib. He tells them to assemble in this place for a very important meeting and discussion. And when they get together over there, uh, Abu Talib speaks to them. And he, and, and remember, it's not just the Muslims, everybody. They were, they were all Muslim. Some were Muslim, some were non-Muslim. And the only person who doesn't take part is who? What do you think? From Banu Hashim, who doesn't take part? Abu Lahab. He's the only person. Everybody else came. All the Muslims, other people as well. Abu Lahab didn't take part, right? And this valley is also was also known as Sha'ab Bani Hashim. That, that we not, normally we call it the Valley of Abu Talib. Sha'ab Abi Talib. So in those days it was known also as Sha'ab Abi Hashim. And today, nowadays, it's known as Sha'ab Ali, referring to Ali radiallahu anhu. But they're all, they're all the same family, Banu Hashim, Abu Talib, Ali radiallahu anhu. And what did they do here? So whilst they're here, they all agreed on one thing, everybody that was there, that we're going to fight tooth and nail to protect Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Until even just, just one of us alive, we're going to protect him. Even if there's only one of them, there's hundreds of them, right? Probably maybe even more than a thousand, right? So many of them, but every single one of them, they said that even if there's only one of us alive, meaning if they all kill all of us, there's only one person alive, we're still going to stand by his side and make sure that they do not harm Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was the commitment, the loyalty of not just the Muslims, even the non-Muslims. Why were the non-Muslims doing it? Out of tribalism, yeah. Nationalism is one of us, okay? One of, you know, hamaradni, afna, like we say in your language. One of us, it's one of ours, that's it. We're not going to, uh, you know, let him go or hand him over. Now, What's happening now, they're, they're in the valley, and whilst they're in this valley, they make this pact. Now this rumor spreads, right? When you speak like this, when you speak in this manner, and you say like, they can kill all of us, we're gonna stand by. What? That sounds like, okay, you guys are getting ready for some kind of a battle. And then this news spread, and the Quraysh family, the Quraysh did not expect this to happen. They thought they're going to go to Abu Talib, hand him over, he's going to hand him over. Or they'll go to the Banu Hashim, right? We're going to give you this kind of money, hand him over. They thought it's going to be an easy process. They did not expect this. When they found out that the Banu Hashim have collectively decided that they will protect him until their death, Quraysh were absolutely shocked. It was beyond their imagination that it would come to this, that Muhammad وسلم, would have so much support that people would be willing to put their life on the line. Obviously now they can't just go and like hand him over. They, they, they're facing hundreds of people who are willing to give their life. And what the Kufar did then, they thought, right, we need a plan B. Plan A failed already, failed really badly. We need to quickly think of plan B. So they gathered in Khayf Bani Kinana. 
where we find those of you who've been for Hajj, or even in Umrah, in Ziyarah, you will have gone to Mina. And in Mina, you see Masjid, Masjid in Mina. Hmm? Namira is in Arafah. Dr. Sam, you should be telling us because you're the person who's been most, most recently for Umrah. Masjid in uh, Mina, what's it called? I actually said the name as well, like a minute ago. What's the masjid called in Mina? Not Kenada. Khaif. No? Nobody's heard of this? Okay, Masjid Khaif. Okay, so this is a masjid in Mina. It's very close to the Jamarat, where you pelt the Shayateen, very close to there. But then when we go for Hajj from the UK, our Europa tents are like 45 minutes away from the Jamarat. So it's about 40 minute walk to get to the Jamarat. But if you go with the, the I don't know about the other countries, but I, I've been with, the, twice I've been with a group from India. So we went from here, but the, the camps were the same. So their tents were right next to Masjid Khaif. So literally you come out of there and the Jamarat, you can actually see the Jamarat. You're literally five minutes away. So it was, it was quite interesting because we could pray our Salah in Masjid Khaif. During Hajj, you wouldn't imagine going to the masjid to pray because there's just millions of people and it's so far away. But it just so happened that their tents were so close by. Um, whereas if you go normal from here, the European tents are about 40, 45 minutes uh, a distance from the Jamarat. So anyhow, at the time of Hunayn, when the Prophet was going towards Hunayn, it's in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Prophet said to the Sahaba, Manziluna ghadan insha'Allah that tomorrow our destination is going to be in Khayf Bani Kinana where the Kuffar made the agreement and he's referring to this agreement that we're going to speak about now. This happened many years later at the Battle of Hunayn and this is in Sahih Al-Bukhari. So the Quraysh got together in this place called Khayf in Mina next to the Jamarat, the Shayateen. And they realized that killing him is no longer an option. We can't, we can't do that now. Um, so instead, they spoke to themselves. What shall we do? What shall we do? How can we somehow... They still, want, they still want to kill him. They still want to kill him, but they can't do it now. Somehow they need the people around him to hand him over. How are we going to get people to hand him over? We can't just go up to them and say, hand him over. They, they refuse that. So we have to think of an idea to force them to hand him over. So after a lot of thinking, they come to this agreement that the best thing to do is let's boycott them. Let's boycott them totally. Cut them off so, so badly that then they're forced to hand him over. And this boycott was no normal boycott. They said, right, the boycott, they said, they write, write this, write, write this down. So they got like a, an agreement and they started writing it down on a parchment. So all of this was written down. They wrote down that, right, from today onwards, between us, meaning everybody that's not in Banu Hashim, right? So the people that were already in that uh, valley, everybody who's, no one is allowed to marry them. Right? And they are not allowed to marry anyone from outside. Number one. Number two. There will be no trade. No one is allowed to sell anything to them. And they are not allowed to buy anything from anyone outside. So don't sell anything to them. Don't let them buy anything. Number three. No one is allowed to socialize with them. And they are not allowed to socialize with anybody. No one talk to them. Okay? No one is allowed to have any kind of sympathy for them. Or show any act of kindness no dealings to be done whatsoever no food no food to be given to them don't allow any food to go there no water no drink nothing no food no dealing no marriages no socializing nothing how long will this carry on for 
Well, this boycott will carry on until they agree to hand him over so that we can kill him. And do you know how, it, how long it lasted? How long did this boycott last? More than two years. Hmm? That's, that's very long. Three years. Three years, right? It's not, it's not something small. The Quraysh did not expect it to last that long. Three years is a very long time. Three years being boycotted, right? Not being allowed to mix freely and being treated like an outcast in your own place for three years. They did not think. And the reason it lasted that long is the Banu Hashim, right? Muslims and non-Muslims, they've stayed firm. They said, no, we're not going to give in. No matter what happens, we're not going to give in. Now, Abu Bakr anhu is not from Banu Hashim. He wasn't in there. Omar anhu is from Banu Ali. He's not in there. Right? But then you had some people that were not Banu Hashim, but they like married into the Banu Hashim. So they were in there. You had Abu Talib, who's a mushrik. He was in there. Okay? Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet he's also in there. Hamza is in there. Okay? You, so it's, it's more to do with the family. Now, the man who wrote this agreement, he was Baghid uh, bin Amir bin Hafid, a man by the name of Baghid bin Amir bin Hafid. The Prophet found out and he prayed against him, and the man's hand did become paralyzed. This is something that took place uh, later on. Now, they took this document so seriously that they had it hung in the Kaaba. So this was something big for them. So inside the Kaaba, it was hung up there. And it said all of these rules and this agreement that, you know, no marriages, no, no connection, no socializing, no trade. No one is to deal with them. No one is to socialize with them. Nothing whatsoever. And this was written there. And what the Quraysh did was, remember, these people were already in that valley, right? They got together in that valley voluntarily. The Quraysh laid a siege and a blockade around that valley. And that's it. These people were now in there. Now, Banu Hashim, a lot of the Banu Hashim had their homes and stuff in there as well. They did this blockade around there, and this is how they initiated the boycott. And the boycott starts in this manner. Now, the Prophet wasallam, the Banu Hashim, the Muslims, the non-Muslims remained here for three years. Did they leave from there? Well, they did. When? At the time of Hajj. So at the time of Hajj, things would be a bit more relaxed. Hajj time comes, and obviously, there's no boycott as such in, in terms of forcing them to stay in that area, but people would still not deal with them the way uh, they would have normally dealt with them. Like they weren't, the Banu Hashim were not allowed. Now, Hajj is a time for answers as well. Hajj is a time not just for Ibadah, it's a time for business. Quran speaks about it. How else would the people make money then? When people would come, right? That's how. The, even from people from outside and there's a Quranic verse that says that when you come for Hajj, you get both you get the best of both you get Deen and you get Dunya so the people that would come from outside they would bring a lot of trade stock why? because they're going to a place where you're going to find people coming from all over the world so you do your Hajj and at the same time once the Hajj is over you can sell items you can sit on the side set up a stall sell some items so that when you go back home you're going with your sins forgiven and your pockets full as well, right? You've got the best of both. And this is this was the system at the time. Now imagine you've got people coming from all over for Hajj. This is a prime time, but the Quraysh had said that the Banu Hashim cannot set up any stores. They're not allowed to do any trade during this time as well. So they were banned from any kind of trade. Now this took place in the seventh year of prophethood. Remember the first three years was, what happened in the first three years? Secret call. Then how many years of open call? Okay, two, two, three years of open call, right? And then this is the following year, okay, after the open call where the boycott takes place and it lasts for three years until the 10th year of prophethood. So now, they're not allowed to keep any, uh, hold any stalls. Any merchandise that would come to Mecca, 
what the Quraysh did is before before that before these trade caravans would actually enter into Makkah, the Quraysh would quickly go to the outskirts of Makkah and they'd buy the full stock. Every even the things that they didn't need, they would buy everything. Everything that this trader has, just so that the, the, the Banu Hashim, when when it, when they do try, there's nothing left for them to buy. And they would rather the people in of the valley suffer and die out of hunger than them eat or get anything to benefit from. Walid bin Mughira, he said that if you notice anyone from the valley trying to buy anything, immediately go and raise the price. Raise the price. Like if, if for example, somebody's coming, a trader is coming, right? And he's selling something. And he's selling this, for example. He's selling this for a pound, right? And you get there and you find somebody from the valley. This is valley on here as well. If somebody from the valley is actually trying to buy this, right? Quickly go there and say, I'll buy it for 10 pounds. I'll buy it for 20 pounds. Raise the price so ridiculously because the people of the valley don't have any, they've not had any income for so long anyway. So maybe if it's a pound, they might be able to afford it. But if you raise the price, he said, look, raise the price and pay more. And that's what they started doing. And he, remember, he was the richest person there. He said, if you don't have money, don't worry, I'll pay for it. You just, like, say 40 quid, like prime drink, 40 pounds, that's it. And I'll, I'll pay for it. But do not let anyone from the valley buy anything. This is what he was saying. And then you had people like Abu Lahab, who's from the Banu Hashim, but he would be at the forefront. He would go and he would make the announcement first. That people, listen, listen, the people of the valley are going to come before they can start raising the price. And he would tell the tradespeople that sell your things much more expensive and don't worry about a loss. We will buy every bit of merchandise that you have. Don't worry, because but obviously, no one wants to keep their prices low because they'll be at a loss. And you can't keep a price for something like, I can't be selling this for 10. Right? No one's going to buy it. So I, it's foolish of me to sell this for 10 pounds. But he's telling them that, look, don't worry about it. You're thinking, who's going to buy it for 10? Don't worry, I'll buy it off you. We've got plenty of people who will buy it off you. Don't worry, you will not face a loss. But do not lower your prices. Increase your prices. Who's doing this? Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab's one of them. It's his people. And this is why after this incident, you will not hear of Abu Lahab anymore. Why? He used to be a respectable person. When he did this with his own clan, they deserted him, told him, get lost. When we, in our most difficult days, you turned against us. Okay, you had issues with the Prophet Sallallahu your nephew, but what did we do to you? We are your people. Uh, and that's why you don't hear his mention. And then later on, he died. Some years later, he died from an illness. Um, but this is what happens. So Abu Lahab, he would rather the innocent children, they die from malnutrition because the screams of the babies and the children were starving, right? They hadn't eaten, there was no food. It could be heard all over the valley, all over Mecca, all you could hear, imagine, right? Three years, you could hear screaming children, crying, men, women, they're just in starvation because these people, they've got food, they're eating, they're enjoying themselves, but they're not letting anything go in, right? Because of this agreement. Um, so, Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, now some of the people, you know, they had certain privileges. Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet wasallam, he once went out of the valley to go and buy something. Um, so he saw some kind of, you know, food being sold, he thought, let me go and buy something. As he was buying, Abu Jahl came behind him and started beating him up and he attacked him. Khadija anha, remember, she's very wealthy, she's in the valley as well. She's also in the valley. She's not from the Nuhashim, right? She's in the valley as well. And um, she found out. So she sent a message to a man called uh, Zam'a bin Aswad and told him to deal with Abu Jahl. Look, Abu Jahl has attacked Abbas, right? Really to become a Muslim as well. And this is not on. So go and deal with Abu Jahl. Tell him what's his problem. Right, you don't want to give us food, fine. But if one of our people manages to sneak out and bring something in, right, what's his issue? Right, can't, what, he can't see us even eat. It's a basic need. Right, let us have something to eat at least. And um, the man went and he had a strong word with Abu Jahl. 
uh, and told him that, look, Scott, you cannot stop people from accessing food and drink. This is a basic needs of humans, and you can't be that cruel. And then Abu Jahl kind of calmed down after, after a while. Most of the time, they survived. Now, what you might think, what did the people do in the valley? How, what did they do? Like, how did they survive? Most of the time, from the narrations that we have, they survived on eating leaves. They ate the leaves from the trees. That is what they were eating. That is what they were surviving on. And the hadith actually mentions, um, Sahaba actually say this, it's quite descriptive, but it gives you an idea. Sahaba say that, um, you know, they were addressing other Sahaba who were in the valley. And they said that when you would go and answer the call of nature and you excrete, you would excrete like the animals that drop um, dung, right? Like cow dung, right? But when we used to excrete, it was like the, um, uh, what's, what's it called? The droppings of a goat, right? And why would that happen? What do goats eat, right? Goats are eating grass. They used to eat grass and they said when we answer the call of nature, our excretion would be like gold droppings, that's it. Because they hadn't eaten anything for so long. This became their diet. This, is, this became their diet. They're eating leaves and surviving on that. Maybe at that time it wasn't so common. I mean, we have salad nowadays. So you might, you might think, well, how can you? How can you kind of survive on that? I mean, a lot of people have a diet eating salad. I'm not trying to trivialize what they were doing, but just to give us a bit of context. And when we say leaves, okay, it, it is doable. People do kind of eat that and survive on that. Yes, some people did die in the Sha'af Valley of Abu Talib, but it wasn't as if like people were dying all over the place. They, they ate leaves. Um, so they're eating these leaves and the cries and the screams of the malnutrition children, you could hear it um, all over the place. And many of the Mushrikeen, they'd be delighted, like they'd hear this. And they were so excited, it would give them pleasure hearing this sound. But there were some who had human sympathy. There were some of them who had that human sympathy and they thought, you know what, you guys sitting here eating and drinking and you know, your own people there, they're starving. Like, don't you have any kind of humanity within you? And some people, like you said, died in the boycott. Abdullah ibn Abbas was born during this period as well. We always hear the name Abdullah ibn Abbas. Okay, the son of Abbas who was the cousin of the Prophet he was born during this three-year period in the valley of Abu Talib. Now one great Sahabi, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas one of the Ashraim he says that one night I was really 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 hungry in this in this three-year period and I was walking and whilst I was walking I felt something underneath my foot. So Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas he says that I was so hungry one night and as I was walking, I felt something beneath my foot. It was, I felt something, it was textured, I felt it beneath my foot. So he said, I picked it up and I ate it. He says, Wallahi, until today I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. I was just so hungry, I didn't even check what it was. I don't even know now. If you ask me what was it, I don't know. Maybe on Qiyamah he'll find out what it was. He's showing you how hungry he was. I just picked it up and I ate it. Another story about the same Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas says, One day I went to answer the call of nature. When I went to answer the call of nature, and you know, went into a corner, was passing urine, and from the sound of the dropping of urine, he says, I heard that when it was landing, I could hear that it was landing on something. It wasn't the ground. So he goes, after I finished, I picked it up and I found it was a dried piece of camel skin. So he goes, I picked it up and I washed it. I washed it. And then he goes, I went and put it in the sun. I left it in the sun for a while until it became very hard. And he goes, I crushed it. And I made powder out of it. He goes, I'd mix it into some water. Because this is what I ate for the next three days. This is, this is the conditions, very harsh conditions. And he's giving his own account. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And Abu Talib 
one fear that he had. Why were they doing all this? What was their ultimate goal? Hmm? No, what was the ultimate goal of the Quraysh? To kill the Prophet That's what the whole thing was. So Abu Talib, throughout this whole three-year period, he lived in fear. Because he thought that what if at night time, they didn't have lights like this, and they're outdoors. What if at night time, they secretly come in and kill him? So what he, every night, what he would do, quite early, as the evening settled in, he would call Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he said, right, where are you sleeping tonight? Let me know. Where are you going to sleep? Right, okay, you're going to sleep, right? Go to sleep early. You go to sleep. Go to bed. So he would ensure that he goes to sleep when it's still a little bit light and everybody knows where he's sleeping. Right? Just so that, that everyone knows. If anybody wants to attack him, right, you know exactly where he is. After it becomes dark, he'd get one of his sons or somebody else from his family to come and swap with him. So in the night, he'd wake him up, move him to somewhere else and put one of his own family. And he did this every single night just to protect the Prophet during this time. Whilst they were in the valley of Abu Talib, um, Abu Talib prepared um, a poem and it comprised of 94 verses of poetry in which he expressed the loyalty of Banu Hashim towards the Prophet the innocence of the Prophet and how they would never ever hand him over regardless and he spoke ill of the, the Quraysh who were trying to do this and these words of poetry are considered as one of the most eloquent words of poetry anyone has ever said some say that they are even Ibn Kathir Rahmatullah has written that these words of poetry and they're available and I don't have time that's a whole thing in itself if we want to go over it um, maybe inshallah one day I think we've mentioned some of the couplets before but the poetry of Abu Talib that he sent in favor of the Prophet Ibn Kathir Rahmatullah considers it much more eloquent in terms of its Arabic than even the Mu'allaqatu Sabah Mu'allaqatu Sabah was seven seven uh, compilations of poetry that were so famous that gained recognition and acceptance for their eloquence that they were hung on the Kaaba. So they were they, they were like so approved amongst the Arabs. You know the Arabs, the Arabic was is what they would battle over. And that's why Quran was revealed with the most complete Arabic that even they were baffled by when they heard it. Right? So these these poems were so famous that they would hang them on the Kaaba. And the Arabic that was used would be full of so much fasaha and balagha, right? That you, could, you couldn't find any language like that. Ibn Kathir says that this poetry of Abu Talib was even better than those seven hung, we call them mu'allaqat, mu'allaqat meaning the ones that were hung on the Kaaba. And uh, the Arabic is very difficult to understand as well. It's interesting because it, it, when we're studying in Darul Uloom, one of the lessons is of this sab'a uh, mu'allaqat where you're going through these seven uh, compilations of poetry um, to build the Arabic literature and to understand it better. Uh, so, this was in the Valley of Abu Talib. Now, some people, kind-hearted people, they wanted to help the people in the Valley as well. So they'd secretly send some food over. Whenever they got a chance, they'd secretly send some food over. One of them was a nephew of Khadija radiallahu anha. His name was Hakim bin Hizam. Later on accepted Islam radiallahu anha. So one day, he was carrying some food for his auntie. And um, he had his slave with him as well. And on the way, met Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl goes, where are you going? Oh, nowhere. So now tell me where you're going. Because I know where you're going. You're going to the valley of Abu Talib. You're supplying food to them. And he said, I'm not going to let you. He took all of his food. So I'm not going to let you take it. And I'm going to disgrace you. I'm going to take you to Makkah and disgrace you in front of everybody. And all of a sudden, Hakim's relative, there's another relative of theirs. His name was Abu Al-Bakhtari. Again, Abu Shrik, Abu Al-Bakhtari, he passed by and said, Abu Jahl, what's your problem? If he's taking food, what's that got to do with you? Food is a human need. Why are you stopping him? And his auntie has asked for it. 
and this food belongs to Khadija. It's her food. It's not your food. So you've got the right over it. Let him go. It's her food. Just ask for it. Let them eat. And when uh, Abu Bakhtari spoke like this, Abu Jal started to fight with him. And the fight then became serious. And Abu Bakhtari grabbed a bone and he smashed the head of Abu Jahl. He, he wounded him and then he crushed him with his foot. And I said, look, next time, don't stop anybody taking food into the valley of Abu Talib. Um, they want to eat, it's their food. You've got no right to stop them. So he come, Abu Jahl come down after him. There's another man who supported uh, the people in the valley as well. Again, Abu Shrik, his name is Hisham ibn Amr. No Amr bin Hisham. Who's Amr bin Hisham? Who's Amr bin Hisham? Amr bin Hisham is Abu Jahl. Okay, this is Hisham bin Amr. Don't get it mixed up. Hisham bin Amr was a notable person. What he would do, this is very interesting. What he would do, he'd get his camel, he'd load it up with lots of food and lots of goods. Right, he'd take it all the way to the valley and then he'd take off the reins or the ropes and everything of his. And then he'll, 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 he'll strike it so that the camel would run. So this camel would run into the valley of Abu Talib Right, and there'd be no one riding it, no one with it. And this, he'd do this regularly. Send camel loads of things in, and the people inside would get really excited and fear, and they've got like loads of food coming in, and they to share it out with everybody. And this is what happened in the uh, valley of Abu Talib. One day, he got caught as well. He was taking three camels, three camel loads one night, and the Quraysh uh, received information regarding him that he's taking these camels. And in the morning, they asked him like. Like, where were you going? And he said, look, guys, I won't do it again. I do exactly, I won't do anything to oppose you. And hearing this, they thought, okay, that's fine. Let's go. And they returned. And Hisham, he looked for another opportunity. And he loaded a couple more camels. And the Kuffar, what they did was they planned to attack. However, Abu Sufyan ibn Harab, he said, he came and he said, don't. We're not going to let you go. We're not going to let you continue. Uh, the, all he's doing is joining kinship with his family. They're trying to show kindness towards them. So this is not something that can be prevented. And I don't like the way the Quraysh have treated them. Therefore, the enmity that you show towards them can be expressed in a different way. The enmity, there's not just one way of showing enmity. You don't agree with them. You can't just boycott them and not let them eat and not them, let them drink. You can show your enmity in a different way. And when he heard this, he became silent and went away. So Banu Hashim, and Banu Abdul Muttalib, they faced such hard conditions. Despite that, they refused to hand Rasulullah over. So the conditions were, you've seen what kind of conditions they faced. But at the end of it all, they said, no matter what happens, we are not going to hand him over to the Quraysh. And whilst they were in the valley, the Prophet continued his mission. He continued spreading Islam. When Hajj time would come, he would meet the people. He would invite them to Islam. So he carried on his mission. And he did not show any sign of losing courage or any kind of weakness whatsoever. The Prophet um, one day, so no, before this happens, let, let's, let's, let's talk about something else. So you know we spoke about there were certain people within the Quraysh that they didn't agree with what was happening. So one of them was, there was Hisham ibn Amr. So this group of people, it wasn't a group first, it started off from one person, then it became two, then it became three, then it became four, then it became five. And when they became a group of five, they made a resolution that let's somehow get into the car and rip that document up. The document on which they've written the boycott, let's rip, rip up the whole parchment. And as a result of which, the boycott of the people in the Sha'ba of Talib will come to an end. So we find that the man called Hisham ibn Amr, he's the one who first went to a person called Zuhair. And he said, that, Are you satisfied that you're eating, you're drinking, you're socializing with the people? And the people in the valley, they don't have anything to eat, they have nothing to drink. And they are living in such harsh conditions. So Zuhair said, what can I, I'm one person, I'm alone, what can I do? What can I do? He says, well, what do you mean, what can you do? Well, how many more people do you need? He goes, we need at least one more person. One more person to join us in this cause, and let's go and rip up that document. See, you've got one person already. Because who is it? Fine, show me. Who's that one? Because it's me. Because there's two of us. 
He goes, okay, because I think we need one more person. Like, there's so many of the Quraysh, we can't just have two of us, get one more person. So they go, okay, let's get one more person. So the, for the first part, third person, they went to a man called Mut'im bin Adi. Again, a very nice, good person. And the Prophet ﷺ praised him, he wasn't a Muslim at the time. And they went to Mut'im. Mut'im, are you happy that you're eating, you're drinking, you're socializing with the people? The people in the valley of Abu Talib, they're suffering, they're going through such harsh conditions. Is it fair? He goes, look, I don't agree with this boycott anyway. But what can I do? I'm only one person. I need somebody else to stand with me. Because you've got somebody else. Who is it? It's me. Okay, two of us is enough, we need three. Because here we've got a third person. I think we need four, one more person. He's got, okay, let's think of somebody else. And based on that, they went to Abu Bakhtari. I've already mentioned Abu Bakhtari. He already stood up for the Muslims. Abu Bakhtari, the same thing happens. Abu Bakhtari, are you happy that the people in the valley of Abu Talib are starving? They don't have any dealings whatsoever. And you're getting by and you're doing... No, because I don't agree with it. But at the end of the day, what can I do? I'm all alone. I need somebody else. You've got somebody. Who is it? It's me. Oh, we need one more person. Yes, I'm ready as well. We need one more. We need five people. So with this in mind, they go to Zamaqa bin Aswad. And the same thing happens. And now how many are there? There's five of them. They plan to gather in a place called al hujum at night. And when they gathered, Zuhair said, I'm going to take the lead. Tomorrow morning, um, I'm going to start. So what he does, Zuhair, he gets up in the morning and he makes seven rounds. He makes the tawaf of the Kaaba. He makes the tawaf of the Kaaba. And after he circumambulates seven times, he, he stops and he addresses the people inside Masjid al-Haram. This has not been done up until now. So after doing the Kaaba, he addresses the people and he says, Oh people of Mecca, Oh people of Mecca, should we eat, should we drink, should we trade, should we socialize whilst the Banu Hashim are suffering in the valley of Abu Talib? This is oppression. And until this document isn't shredded into pieces, I'm not going to budge from here. I'm going to carry on. This is what he announced openly. Now, they planned it really well. So imagine you've got, you know, this is how it works, isn't it? They planned it and they had the people seated in different places. One here, one, the five people that spread out. So in the beginning when he stood up, the people thought, how dare you speak like this? So he said this, Abu Jahal stood up and he goes, Zuhair, you're a liar. That's not true. That's not true. What you're saying, this parchment is never going to be torn. We've already agreed that this parchment is going to remain. This is the boycott document. No one's going to take Terry up. So now what happens is from the crowd, Zama'a bin Aswad, the second person stands up and he says, Abu Jahal, you're a liar. The parchment is going to be detoured. We didn't agree with this. You guys went and signed it. From day one, we didn't agree with this. Boycotting the, the, the Muslims and the rest of the Banu Hashim in this way, it's not right. And then what happens is Mut'im bin Adi stands up from the other corner. says, I don't agree with it as well. And then uh, Hisham bin Amr also stands up. says, I don't agree as well. Abu Jahl was clever. Okay, he wasn't foolish. He, he goes, this seems to be all planned. It seems you guys planned all of this, but he wasn't planned here. You've, not, you've been planning this somewhere else, right? You've planned this somewhere else. Now Abu Jahl realized, and Abu Talib, now Abu Talib wasn't there when all this was happening. Where was Abu Talib? Abu Talib was still in the valley. Whilst Abu Talib is in the valley, the Prophet told Abu Talib, he called his uncle, and says, uncle, come here. I need to tell you something. What are you going to say? He says to him that, do you know something? Uh, termites, termites have just come into the Kaaba and they've eaten up the whole document on which the boycott was written. And the only part that hasn't been eaten is where it says, Bismillahumma. So at the, at the top of the... Uh, document it was written in the name of Allah basically. So what happens is the termites, he says the termites have come and they've eaten away at the document. The only piece they've left is where it says Now Abu Talib says, really? How do you know? Like you've not left this place. Nobody comes and speaks to you. He says, Allah has informed me through wahi. Allah has informed me through wahi. That's how I found out. So Abu Talib gets excited. He gets the people with him and he says, come on, let's go. And so they're, they're about to have this discussion here. And these five people have stood up in Masjid al-Haram. 
And they said, right, no matter what happens, we're going in the Kaaba right now. We're going to rip that document into pieces. Because now there's five of them. They're about to go and Abu Talib walks in at this time. And Abu Talib says, now when people see Abu Talib, they get really excited. Why do you think that Quraysh get excited when they see Abu Talib coming? Why, why, why would you think? What were they trying to achieve? They were trying to achieve through the harsh conditions. They were trying to suppress them in such a way that they hand over the Prophet So they think that Abu Talib has come now, no longer being able to bear the harsh conditions. He's come and he's agreed that he, I'm, I'm coming to hand over Muhammad So they're all excited, they welcome him. And Abu Talib says, I've come to give you information that the parchment on which you wrote the agreement of the boycott has been eaten up by the termites. And the only part remaining is Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So the people are shocked. So much so that Abu Jahal and others say that if that is the case, then we're going to end the boycott. He was convinced that that didn't happen. And if it isn't the case, if it still remains, that means we're going to hand over Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa to us and we're going to get him killed as we've agreed from before. Abu Talib says, yes, fine, go for it. He was convinced. He was convinced on the words of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when they went inside the Kaaba and they checked the documents, exactly as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had said, Termites have come, they've eaten up the whole document and there was nothing left from it besides Bismillahumma. And this is what caused the boycott to end. And the Prophet Abu Talib told everybody, go back to your homes, cause a lot of embarrassment for the people of Quraysh. And they were all sent back and said, look, you've got nothing to worry about. Go back to your homes. And the boycott comes to an end. After how many years? Three long years. Three years they remain in this boycott and it comes to an end. Uh, we'll end here inshallah. Uh, in next week's session, we will speak about uh, how Abu Talib then, after leaving from here, he becomes very ill. Abu Talib becomes very ill. He's an old man now. He becomes very ill. And in his final moments, the Prophet وسلم, before the Prophet gets there, the Quraysh come to him to try to negotiate something with him again. The Prophet وسلم, tries to present Islam to him. And then his final moments when he passes away. And then later on, Khadija also passes away. We'll be speaking about that next week, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the true love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa akhul da'wana. And alhamdulillah, ya Rabbi al